0: Chapter 24 The air was cold and crisp. I tried to hug my neck with my shoulders. You're walking much too slowly, Hugo said. We both wore heavy coats we'd picked up this morning. Our breath was gray. We walked down the sidewalk, past restaurants, bars and shops, toward the Mobiak Lodge, a blue four-story Queen Anne Victorian mansion that loomed over the lesser Queen Anne's of Old Town Eureka like a castle. It was surrounded by a spiked wrought iron fence, and uplit in the afternoon gloom by floodlights planted between the shrubs. It had ornately carved fascia and cornices, and a tower with a pointy turret. There were four gables on just the front face. When I'd been planning my architecture tour, it had been the final stop, the climax. Are we late? I said. If we're not early, we're late. When we reached the wrought iron fence outside the lodge Hugo stopped me. Quickly, I must teach you the traditional Mobyak greeting. You will be asked to perform it upon entry to the conference room. He stuck out his hand. Shake my hand as you would normally. I did as I was told. Now lean in, he continued, and offer your breath like this. He breathed out. Then you smell the other person's breath. You're kidding me. Far from it. This greeting has been used for centuries so that other Mobiacs will know if you're under the influence of bloom or not, if you're channeling the ghost or riding it. Even those not gifted with a halomite senses will be able to smell the cackle on your breath, not you of course as you have not been trained. When you are done smelling each other's breath, you will pivot 90 degrees to your left like this, no still holding hands, and you shake again from another perspective giving the meeting grace. Hugo had mentioned grace a few times during our discussions last night. To Mobiacs, it meant seeing the world without distortion. To achieve grace required a diversity of perspectives. The concept played a big part in Mobiac trials. Hugo punched in a code at the walk-in gate and held it open while I walked through. The grounds were not well maintained. The shrubs and trees needed pruning. The lawn was covered in dead leaves and marred by dormant dandelions. Now that I was closer to the mansion, I could see the paint was sun damaged and chipping. I also saw several security cameras. We walked up the front steps, and a preteen boy opened the door for us. He avoided eye contact with Hugo and ignored his greeting. Hugo stopped and squared his shoulders to the child. Did your grandmother tell you about next month? The boy didn't look up or answer. A vendetta is a poison. It will warp your world. If you're not home on January 5th, I will come find you. We walked through the threshold, and when the door closed behind us I said, What was that about? His father coerced a young woman into throwing the ghost of his dead lover. When the ghost arrived, it was in the mood to do more than just talk. He was sentenced to flogging and five years as a monk in the monastery. Flogging? I said. What is this, the Middle Ages? Hugo ignored my question. A young girl took our coats. I heard talking in another room and smelled old varnish and freshly baked cake. I was surrounded by opulence, from the chandeliers to the grandfather clock to the stained glass. The mansion had been built in the late 17th century by a wealthy timber baron, who hadn't been shy with his money. Old-growth redwood, the source of his fortune, had been used in every aspect of construction, down to the decorative elements, which were mostly hand-carved and stained dark. The bench and the vestibule, the balustrades, the archways, and the ceiling tiles were intricate and beautiful, but what caught my eye the most was the crown molding. I've been here before, I said. In a whirl. Hmm, Hugo said, then ducked into a room on the left and quickly came back out. She's not in there.
1: Who? Kalia? No my bond.
0: I must put you in her care while I go and change." I followed him into the next room. A long table stood against the inside wall. Teacups, dessert china, embroidered napkins, silverware, three silver pitchers, and three different cakes were all arranged on a white tablecloth. A large painting of a man and a woman from the waist up hung above the table. Under the painting was a plaque that read, For our venerable Otolith, we are infinitely grateful." Twenty or so men and women stood in clusters, eating, drinking, talking. I could tell by their clothes most of them had come straight from work. I counted one bus driver, two park rangers, two nurses, three policemen, one cable guy, two possible lawyers, and three possible salesmen with slacks and spiky gelled hair. Everyone took turns stealing glances at me, the new kid. A few openly stared. I searched for Kalia, but she wasn't here. One of the possible lawyers approached Hugo while I grabbed a slice of cake, grateful to have something to do with my nervous hands. "'Hugo Sinclair,' the man said, sticking out his hand. He was thin and wore a tan suit. "'It's an honor to finally meet you. I'm Matt Claiborne. Did you get the email I sent you?' Hugo shook his hand, stone-faced. Unfortunately, I have been without access to my email these last three days. I apologize for any inconvenience. That's okay. That's okay. We're going to propose the new laws next month so there's still time. We would love to get you on video. As a respected member of the Nabobbery, your support would be invaluable to our efforts. I'll think it over, Hugo said. Excuse me. He walked away, and I hurried after him. We weaved through the clusters of people and reached the corner of the room, where a woman stood alone, still as a statue, eyes closed, a long thin nose almost touching a piece of cake she held up on a plate. She had brown straightened hair with blonde highlights. Bangs obscured one of her eyes.
1: Darling? Hugo said. The woman did not move. Is this your bond? I said.
0: Yes. Just give her a minute. We stood there in silence for what felt like a literal minute before the woman opened her eyes, saw us, and stood up straight. Charlie, Hugo said. I present my bond, Shanika of the Irving line, part-time monk, tidepool enthusiast, and professor of the third stomach studies, Judith Scharnberg. Then Hugo pointed an upturned palm at me. Judith, I present entrepreneur, lover of bread, and Shaka of the Sinclair line, Charlie Allison. I'm also an explorer of forests and a watcher of sunsets, I said. Neither of them laughed. Judith bowed and said, I receive you with grace knowing that faces are nothing more than tools. Hugo raised his chin and eyebrows at me, and I took the hint and bowed and said, I receive you with grace knowing that faces are nothing more than tools. Then we performed the traditional American mobiac handshake. Afterward I asked, what are third stomach studies? I am a spiritual leader, Judith answered. I study the ancient texts and mystical whorls, and I guide our members in their pursuit of grace. The third stomach is a temporary specialization of my efforts. She turned to Hugo. Since our conversation last night, I have delved deeply into the history of the Nemaloki. I have also scoured the Rakula Chronicles. She bowed her head and lowered her voice to a whisper. It appears to be the case that when Arawak regurgitates someone, a nexus whorl is created which may be used to travel between the seven stomachs. But without a Rakulak, this nexus whorl is useless. If for example, I somehow entered this nexus whorl and tried to travel to Zadatur, my cackle would be scattered to the wind, so to speak. So only a sojourner like our Mr. Charlie Allison may use a nexus whorl, Hugo said. Yes, unless… If the friends saved Blanche's blood, and if they figured out a way to trap Mr. Allison's rakulik in one of Blanche's whorls, they could resurrect Blanche for good, bypassing Arawak's vomit reflex. They could also use this nexus whorl to travel between stomachs, although I'm not sure what good it would do them. Though the disease that is Blanche Duluth would threaten to destroy reality as we know it in our stomach, I believe she would not last long in the other stomachs. There are certain natural defenses that exist. Invasion of another stomach is very difficult, as evidenced by the Zadatorian Wars, of course. The homogenization of our stomach will be catastrophic enough, surely. All the more reason for what we do tonight. Judith nodded gravely. Stomach invasions and nexus whirls it all barely made sense to me. Hopefully, tonight was the beginning of the end of Blanche's plans. My testimony would free Kalia from Brad and she would serve her sentence at the monastery, where she could recover in peace. Then with her regained strength, she would destroy the friends of Blanche Duluth. And the world would be saved. Hugo excused himself to go change, and I stood with Judith in awkward silence for a moment, before taking a bite of cake. As soon as it hit my tongue, I knew I'd made a mistake. It tasted like liver and bananas. I couldn't bring myself to swallow, so I pretended to cough, then quietly spit the cake out into my napkin. I thought I'd been smooth about it, but by the look on Judith's face, I hadn't. What kind of cake is this? I said.
1: Blood cake, Judith said. But don't fret too much. It's made from cow's blood. Oh good. Now it
0: seems normal. Traditionally it was made from Mobiac blood. But that was literally, eons ago, when we still had cannibalistic tendencies." Cannibalistic tendencies? I said, thinking of M and her disease. You mean there are whorls out there of people eating each other? Oh of course. Great. When Hugo returned, he was wearing a satin, emerald green mumu with lime green seams and gold and lime green sequins on the shoulders a fitting outfit for a nabob of cosmic digestion I supposed. With the time we have left, he said, I would like to preserve a whorl of you for posterity in case anything happens. It would be a shame not possess a record of a shaka of the Sinclair line. He started tapping his heel in a conspicuous manner.
1: What are you doing? I said.
0: Tapping the quick. There are spikes inside my shoe, giving me the necessary pain to preserve a whorl. Would you be so kind as to graft to me? To you? You have grafted before, have you not?
1: The retelling of your exploits indicated. I have, but never to a person. The same principle applies.
0: Okay. If that's what you want. I shrugged, closed my eyes, focused my mind on Hugo, and recited some Pictionary poems that seemed appropriate. Crabapple cement, car knuckle goose trap, fragrant nylon strap. Hugo pinched his face in disgust. Spoken word. I think he captured you pretty well, Judith said, a hint of a smile on her face. Fragrant nylon strap in particular, I found fitting. Spoken word is one of the weakest grafting techniques, Hugo spat back and for the Shaka of the Sinclair line. Unsuitable. I didn't exactly have time to learn violin or watercolors, I said. What about dance, he said. Or song. All marshals use spoken word, Judith said. It's fast and it can get them out of a tough jam. Marshals use it as a complement to other techniques. Well, now that you've been introduced, you can teach him a technique befitting his new station." The lights turned off and on twice. Hugo told me that was the signal that the conference was about to start. Only half of the room began filing out. Hugo had explained last night that lodge conferences were exclusive events. Only the nabobbery, family heads and witnesses, if there was a trial, were allowed to attend. I made my way back to the table and poured myself a cup of coffee to wash the taste of blood out of my mouth. I was nervous. Hugo and Judith walked ahead, and I followed them across a large hall with a high ceiling. We got in line outside a door where a teenage boy stood holding a basket in which people were placing their phones. Everybody performed the weird handshake with him before entering.